Well, good morning. Do you ever feel like you're not prepared for the situations you're in? Do you ever at different points feel like you're in over your head? Do you ever at different points look at the situations in your life and say, I can't handle this? I know that I'm in a point in my life where I have this sort of thought almost each and every day. Today marks about eh, two, three months of being a student ministry pastor. And it hasn't taken long for me to realize what all that that includes. And it hasn't taken me long to realize that, you know, I don't know if I'm the best person cut out for something like this. And it has forced me in some of the points where my thoughts become my enemy where I wonder, am I in the right place right now? And on top of that, for those of you that may not know, I am in an engagement season with my fiancé at the moment. And some of you do know that that season is a time that's very stressful. And a lot of people have been telling me, oh, cherish this time. You know, you're going to miss it when, you, when it passes. I'm not going to lie, I don't feel that. <laughs> not going to lie, I'm not a planner. I'm not a logistics person. I'm not very good at figuring out the little minutia details. And so, me knowing that that's one of the best ways to love my fiance right now is to figure out how to do that, shows me how unequipped I am and makes me wonder if, if I am the, the man that God has called to lead and love this wonderful woman. And maybe in your own life, you're looking at where you're at and you're saying, I don't have the skills to be a, a parent for these children. You know, I love them dearly, but I don't know how to do this. Or you might be saying, as a grandparent, you might be saying, I, I don't know how I can impact my, my children now who are off on their own or my grandchildren who are being raised as well and I may see some goods and some bads of parenting there. You might be saying, what can I do in that situation? I, I feel inadequate. You might be looking at the world at large and looking at the church in that world and saying, what, where did we get it all wrong? Why aren't we doing what we're supposed to be doing? Why are we missing the point? Did we make a mistake somewhere along the way? Or maybe the question flips to the other side where we say, did God make a mistake along the way? I want us to ask these two questions this morning across many different areas in our lives because I believe that there is an answer found for these questions in Scripture, in the passage we're going to be studying today. And so if you have your Bibles, open them up or turn them on on your phone and, and, and go to the book of 1 Corinthians we're going to sit in chapter 1 today because I believe that Paul gives us answers to these questions and these feelings and these nagging doubts that we have where we ask, did I make a mistake? We're in those moments when our thoughts become our enemies and we say, did I mess up? Did God mess up? 
I believe the answer is found in this passage. But before we get to that, I want us to show the context of this passage. Because by looking at the context found in this passage, it'll help us to understand the truths that we're going to be presenting. I believe there are two truths in this passage for us. But before we get to those, look with me at verse 18. Paul is already beginning an introduction in in this letter. And he starts out in verse 18 by saying this. He says, For the word of the cross is folly, to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Notice what Paul is doing here. Paul is taking, is is asking one question and he's having two different groups of people point at and answer that question in their own perspective. He's showing those that believe in the word of the cross. The word of the cross being the foundational Christian truth that Jesus Christ died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. He's showing what what Christians ask and what Christians see when they look at the cross. And then he's showing what those who don't believe in the cross, those who are not Christians, see when they look at the cross. And he's showing us that those who believe in it, it's the power of God being shown to them. But those who don't believe in it, it's foolish. And they're saying, how could any of you Christians believe in this thing? I mean, think of it this way. For some of us who may have been Christians for longer, it's, it's hard to remember and realize how strange and almost in some ways how counterintuitive the message of the cross is. I mean, think about it. A man being born and, and dying the death of a dog in the street is the key to eternal life? Who would believe that? If someone came up to you on the street and said that the key to your salvation is a man who died by an electric chair. Would you believe that? I know I wouldn't. And yet, for those of us who are in the family of God, for those of us who are Christians, we look at the cross and we see it as God's power before us as he saved us from our sins. And so this is the context of the passage that presents us in in verses 26 through 31. And Paul is immediately distinguishing. He's he's breaking up two groups, those that believe in God and those that do not, those who are Christians and those that aren't. And he's showing us the differences between the two. And he continues that in verse 26. Read with me, please. He says this. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Paul is telling us, he says, look at your, look at your salvation. Look at you becoming Christian. Before you were Christian, you were not the, the high points of society. You weren't the, the movers and shakers of your city. You weren't the people that had influence according to worldly standards. Paul is assuming a definition of people who are not able to impact society, who are not able to make a difference, who are not able to change the world. When you look at the church today, it's really difficult to to remember what the very first Christians looked like. Because you look at a church today, you've got a a beautiful sanctuary with with well-cushioned seats. You've got lights that shine onto a stage showing a guy who is dressed in what he believes to be nice-looking clothing. 
sharing a word before you. And it's really easy to think that this is what church has always looked like, but it hasn't. Church, when this book was written, looked more like a small house, looked more like a small group of people, looked more like people who were homeless, looked more like beggars in the streets, people who were just trying to find out on a day-by-day basis how they were going to put food on the table. Those were the first Christians. And if you were to think about people that could change a city, people that could change a world, who would you pick? Would you pick the homeless? Would you pick the people in poverty? Would you pick the people under oppression? I know I wouldn't. You would pick the people that are powerful in society, people that have influence in society. You would think of the politicians of society. You would think of the city leaders. You would think of, perhaps in our day and age, actors and actresses and journalists, people that are putting out information, people who are popular. That's who I'd put on my team if I wanted to change the world. Yet God here is showing us, through the writings of Paul, that God is choosing people who are not the movers and shakers of society. Leading these people who are reading this letter to ask the same questions that we're asking today. Specifically, I'm saying, I'm not cut out for this, God. How am I supposed to change the world? How are we supposed to change the world? We're nobodies. What are we? Did I make a mistake, God? Did you make a mistake, God? They're asking the same questions that we're asking today. And not only that, but Paul digs a bit deeper into this. Read with me verses 27 and 28. It says, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. Look at the verbiage there. God chose. It doesn't say that God allowed. It doesn't say that God, you know, said, okay, fine, whatever. God intentionally chose the people who would be in his family. God intentionally chose people who were the lowest in society. God intentionally chose people that Paul basically calls nobodies. And the humble truth of it is that if you're a Christian, God chose you. It feels weird. Let me take a step back here. It feels weird to say that when God chose us, he chose nobodies. (laughs) How encouraging is that? And yet, for some reason, this was God's plan. For some reason, God specifically designed it this way. Why? The rest of the passage explains that. Before we get to that, I want to make the first truth of this passage known, and that is very much quite simply that the family is flawed. That we look at the church today and we say, why isn't the church doing more that it should be? 
Why is that family doing, isn't doing more than it should be? And yet we, we, we have this high image of ourselves, of the church. We have this high image that we're, the, that we're a beacon of peace and a beacon of light and that we're putting on our Sunday best and we're coming into church and we're sitting down and, and whether we realize it or not, in some ways we have a very high view of ourselves. But God here is saying no. God here is almost saying that behind that act that we all play, when we look at the struggles in our lives and we're barely keeping our heads above water, and we're saying, what is going on? God is saying, good. Everything's going according to plan. What a wild truth is that? Why is God doing that? The rest of the passage answers that. But the first truth is that the family is flawed. Continue with me. Verse 29. After talking about God choosing who is the lowest, after talking about what God chose those that, according to the worldly standards, could not make any impact in the world, God chose those people who said that they feel inadequate in their own lives. Verse 29 says, so that. Whenever you see a so that in the Bible, that means that the question that's being asked is now being answered. Whenever you see a so that, get excited. Verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Would you do a thought experiment with me this morning? Let's develop a hypothetical situation. Let's develop a hypothetical situation that the church, the universal church, not just Calvary, Calvary and other churches in Battle Creek and Michigan and the United States and the world. Let's say that the church, the universal church body of believers was perfectly prepared and adequate enough to handle all the difficulties that we've been given. Let's imagine that for a second. Obviously, that's not true, but let's imagine it for a second. That means that for those of us who are or have been parents, then we know how to disciple our children. For those of us who are grandparents are saying, oh, I know how to impact my grandkids and my kids even now as they're living their own independent lives. For those of us who might be students, we're saying, I can now, I know how to handle all these assignments. And I not only that, but I can witness to friends at school. And we take a step even further and we say that this church, the church knows how to be a beacon of light, a perfect beacon in a dying world. And people can come to us because they see something different in us because we know how to handle it. And people come in and conversions happen and the church grows. And then when we look to the story of Scripture, we find a point in history that God promises when the church will win, when death will be destroyed, when sin will be no more. It's a promise in Scripture. And when we get to that point in this hypothetical world, we can go before God and say, you know, God, thank you for for saving me and all that sort of stuff, but look at what we've done. Look at what I did. 
Look at my children that I oh so perfectly discipled. Look at my grandkids that I oh so perfectly influenced. Look at my job that I oh so perfectly did. No one had a single issue with me, and I was just the, the cool cat in the house. And along the way, I got to use that to share the gospel with people, and they got to accept Jesus into their lives. Look at what I did. Where is God in that equation? If we are perfectly able to handle all the situations in our life, then why do we need God? If we're perfectly able to raise our children or our grandchildren or disciple in our church or be an effective witness in the community, When would we ever ask God for help? And much more, when would God ever be glorified by us? God is in the business of bringing glory to himself because he knows what is best for us. And what is best for us is giving glory to God, is giving God all the credit for all the good things that happen in our life. And this passage is specifically showing us that we have nothing that we can do on our own We are not prepared for the situations that life throws at us. I've been told, I don't know, but I've been told that if you're a parent, you know this better than anybody. We are not handled, we are not prepared for the situations that is put in our lives. And God says, good. Because that's when God gets to work. Really quickly, there's a a truth that's been thrown around in the church or this teaching, I wouldn't call it a truth, this teaching, that says that we are able to handle all the situations that come before us in life by our own strength. Not only have I heard it preached, I've heard it sang about, I've even heard it in a class at Bible college. And let me tell you, that truth, that people claim is truth, is not and it is dangerous. And if you want an example, go to 2 Corinthians with Paul, the thorn in his flesh, where he's crying out to God, saying, God, deliver me from this. If you feel like you're just barely keeping your head above water, God is saying, good, because now you just might fall on your knees. When was the last time when you were equipped to do something that you asked for help. Don't even think about God for a moment. Think of your jobs. Think of the tasks that you do as a day-to-day basis. If you know how to do something, do you ask for help? If you're skilled and prepared to handle something, do you ask somebody else for assistance? Many times you don't. I know I don't. But why? Because I already know how to do it. I don't have to ask people for assistance. Now put God into the picture. If you could handle your spiritual life properly, if you could live an authentic witness by your own strength, would you ever get down on your knees and beg God for help? I don't think that I would. And so this this verse is showing us that when we get on our knees and when we 
realize that we can't do this, when we realize that our family is flawed, is when we go to God and we ask God to work and we let God work. But the easy issue that can come from that is saying, okay, then I don't need to do anything. Then I can just sit back, I'm done, God, you handle it all. Well, that's where verses 30 and 31 come into play. Let's read those. And because of him, that being God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. God doesn't just throw us on the sideline and say, I've got this. God gives us tools to work in the, in, the, in the here and the now, to still grow, to still become more like Jesus. And though we can't do it on our own, God is not saying, go to the sidelines and let me handle it. God is saying, be here with me. I've given you the best tool that you need right now. And that tool is Jesus Christ, who became to us a lot of different words that we've heard in church, but we don't fully know what they mean. Who became to us wisdom. Who became to us righteousness. Righteousness, a right standing before God so that when God looks down on us, he doesn't look at our sinful state. He doesn't see it because when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he gave us the ability to have his perfection put onto us like a coat. We take off our coat and we put on the coat of perfection. That's not from our own works, but it's from God sacrificing his son on the cross. Righteousness. Sanctification, literally being set apart from the world. A daily grind in which we, we struggle over the scriptures and we struggle in prayer and we grow closer and closer to God and we grow further and further away from the world where we, we take off the worldly desires that we have and we, we grow and we put on the godly desires that we have found in his word. And there's redemption Redemption, the beautiful thing that says that you are a slave to sin, but God, when he died on the cross and you accepted him and you accepted this truth to save your souls is when God bought you with the price of his own blood so that you are not a slave to sin any longer. God's not saying, sit back and let me handle this. God is saying, you get to grow. You get to work. You get to be involved in this world. And guess what? Just that ability, even, God provided for us. We can only grow because God has given us the ability to grow. We can only be effective parents and grandparents and employers and employees because God has given us the ability to. If the first truth of this passage is that the family is flawed, the second truth of this passage is so that the father gets the credit. If you forget everything else today, but remember one sentence, remember this. Remember that the family of God is flawed so that the Father gets the credit. If you feel in over your head right now, know that you're not alone. We're all in over our heads right now. Some of us, it's just harder to share that. And that's okay. Okay. But know that there is reason and there is purpose for the difficulties you're going through in life right now. And one of the main purposes is so that you can give it away. You can take this thing that you've been holding oh so tightly. Whatever that is in your life, it's different for all of us. That thing you're holding on, you're saying, I have control of this. I can fix this. You know that thing in your life. 
God is telling you to let go. God is telling you to get on your knees before him and say, Lord, I've tried. I've tried to make this work. I've tried to fix this, but I just can't. Would you take this off of my, would you take this burden off of my shoulders? Would you take this thing in my life and would you work in that? Whatever that is in your life, give it to God today. Give it to God right now. Because there's going to be a point where we appear before God. There's going to be a point when sin and death and suffering is only a memory. And it's at that point when we will see all that God did with a bunch of nobodies like us. Again, it feels weird. But when we see all that God did with a bunch of nobodies like us, all we can do is bow before his throne and say to you, Lord, is the honor and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen.